I, I, I never in my, my wildest dreams thought that this website would garner that much attention, and I, I'm really glad it has because I think it's helped a lot of people find direction in the UFO field because if you, if you just plunge into this like I did, you have no idea which way to go mm-hmm. because there really isn't a lot of information out there on who's, who's credible and who's not, and these, these are my opinions on my website, by the way. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a very confusing field to get into where a lot of people are selling fluff UFO videos or other garbage and giving people bad information. And hopefully my website is a resource for folks to come to and say, oh, okay, and get some direction. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio. It is June 10th, 2006. My guest this week is Royce Myers. He is the editor and creator of UFOWatchdog.com. It's always been a favorite website of mine. I check it out as often as I can to make sure I know what's going on in the world of ufology because Royce Myers is on top of it. They specialize in investigating the claims of some of the more outrageous personalities in the field of the esoteric and often find that there's more than meets the eye to these stories and there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that go on and that the people making some crazy claims are often uh, just plain crazy themselves. Let me give you a little bit of background on Royce Myers. Royce Myers is the editor and creator of UFOWatchdog.com. He has an occupational and educational background in law enforcement and criminalistics and holds an AAS degree in criminal justice. Royce has conducted field investigations into cattle mutilations and crop phenomenon, working in conjunction with the BLT research team. UFO Watchdog comes to you from the home of Royce and is operated by him, with the occasional assistance of friends, fellow researchers and investigators, and other contributors. And no matter what anyone says, the government is not funding Royce as a debunker, as is the fantasy of those who overestimate their importance. His website is ufowatchdog.com. It is one of the more controversial websites out there in ufology. I'm a longtime fan of UFOWatchdog.com. As been all of America Audio got rolling along, I said, let's get Royce Myers on the show. Let's talk about UFOWatchdog.com, because you don't hear from Royce Myers on many other radio shows. That's why we wanted to be different here at Been All of America Audio and bring you the UFO Watchdog himself, Royce Myers. So without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was conducted on May 23, 2006. Royce Myers on Ben All of America Audio. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Ben All of America Audio. I want to welcome as my special guest this week, Royce Myers. He is the brainchild behind UFOWatchdog.com. Uh, their tagline is, sometimes you need a second opinion, and they focus on 
really keeping an eye on ufology, the field, and uh, rooting out some of the troublemakers that emerge in ufology and setting the record straight on some of these stories that come out, and you're sort of wondering, what, what's the story with that? And then it turns out the guy's a liar. Chances are you heard about it at ufowatchdog.com, because that's what Royce Myers does. They're, they're watching over the UFO field, thankfully, because somebody has to do it, let's face it. Chances are you've sort of seen a little bit of an influence uh, from their website on banalofamerica.com, because I definitely, as I was building up the website, I was always checking out ufowatchdog.com because I appreciate all their work that they do. So welcome to the show, Royce Myers. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, let's start out uh, with your background, how you got into ufology, and uh, what led up to you starting ufowatchdog.com. Well, I first got interested in UFOs in uh, uh, 1994. I was out driving with a friend of mine very late at night. It was a weekday, and this was down in uh, southern Oregon. And I'd had a, a sighting of a very unusual object. And after that, I had started reading just about every UFO book I get my hands on and trying to find uh, whatever information I could. And I've done some cattle mutilation investigations and some work for the BLT research uh, folks. And after that, I had decided, well, I need to go to a UFO conference because that's what everybody does. They get interested, they read books, they exhaust all the resources for books almost, and decide that, well, I need to go to a conference because the people who know about this stuff are going to be there. Yeah. And so I went to a conference down in Los Angeles and I want to say about 95, and I kind of had an epiphany of sorts when I was there. What I saw, I really didn't like. <laughs> And uh, I, I, I told this, I was down in McMinnville, Oregon, uh, for, the, for the UFO Fest over this last weekend. And I told people that I hate UFO conferences. <laughs> you know, a couple of chuckles and a couple of weird looks from it. And one of the main reasons that I, I came just to really not like the whole UFO conference bit was that there's a lot of sensationalism. And they were very conspiracy-based, and I just I stay away from conspiracies because everybody associates conspiracies with nuts. Yeah. And the UFO conference seemed, seemed more interested in promoting UFO personalities who were making these god-awful sensationalistic claims as opposed to promoting people who I felt were a lot more credible. Mm -hmm. And I also saw, there was also this, this apathy in terms of when somebody's credibility was high, was really questioned, or there was reason to believe that it was a hoax, they would host these folks anyway. And so when I started saying this, I, I was pretty concerned about it because I have a pretty solid interest in UFOs. Yeah. And so I started a small website. Uh, it was called uh, Exposé, uh, the Watchdog of Ufology, and it was a small personal website that I had, and. After a while, it, it, what I was doing was I was publishing my opinions on cases and some of the things that I had found and experienced in the field, and it was starting to kind of get popular, which I was really surprised. A lot of people were, were tuning in and listening to what I had to say. And so later, uh, sometime in 99, I had scaled it up to ufowatchdog.com, changed the name and, and, the, and the look of the site, yeah. and kind of became, in some sense, a better business bureau for UFOs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't sell newsletters or predictions or website subscriptions, lectures, DVDs, books. I, you know, I don't sell any of that stuff. It's it's one of the few sites 
that has a lot of, I think, decent content on it that doesn't charge for the content. Mm -hmm. And my goal was to further serious debate and to expose the frauds and the charlatans and the snake oil salesmen and all the other drivel in the field as much as I could to hopefully take it to the next level to where we could get rid of some of these some of these morons and move along and start really focusing on the credible body of UFO evidence. Yeah. And uh, like you said, the, the general apathy of people in, in, in the esoteric fields when someone uh, exposes a hoax, there's also a lot of zealous folks who will just, uh, they will swear by somebody no matter what. Um, what's been the reaction of ufology to to your website and your work? Uh, what's been the reaction of just not only the folks in like the uh, the names and the personalities, but also the every everyday people? Have you gotten a lot of reaction from people? I've gotten good reactions from from the majority of folks. I get uh, I, you know once in a while you get this kind of crazy slanted uh, uh, email or uh, or rambling or whatever else. But for the most part, it was it was very well received by a lot of people, and I found that there was there were a lot of people out there that were as sick and tired as I was of all the nonsense that was going on. Yeah. And so I've got I I've got a, a pretty good readership. Uh, this website is just it's amazing. It's almost got like four million hits. Oh wow! It's, it's nuts. I, I I never in my my wildest dreams thought that this website would garner that much attention, and I, I'm really glad it has because. I think it's helped a lot of people find direction in the UFO field because if you if you just plunge into this like I did, you have no idea which way to go mm -hmm. because there really isn't a lot of information out there on who's who's credible and who's not. And these, these are my opinions on my website, by the way. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a very confusing field to get into where a lot of people are selling fluff UFO videos or other garbage and giving people bad information, and hopefully my website is a resource for folks to come to and say, oh, okay, and get some direction. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting about you is that you sort of, like you said, you started out on the internet. Um, that's sort of where you've uh, grown as a researcher. Uh, what's been, and uh, when did you say you started that first uh, expose website? Oh, I probably in ninety ninety seven. Oh wow! So okay, so you've seen like almost. So it's been like what now? Wow, uh, almost ten years, right? Uh, the website, yeah, just about, just uh, about. I've actually been been uh, interested in UFOs for since ninety four, since that first initial site. So I've yeah. been around it for about twelve years. And. Uh, what, how would you describe uh, the evolution of ufology as a science on the Internet? Um, as the Internet's grown and everything, how do you think ufology's adapted to using the Internet? I think it's, it's just like any, anything else. There are a lot of, there's a lot of bad information out there. There's a lot of good information. And it really doesn't take much. Anybody can get a computer, a keyboard, and, you know, plug in and get a website. It's just, I think it's helped in a, in a lot of in a lot of aspects because it's a lot easier to do investigations and to stay in contact with people. Yeah. And it's a great tool because you can go in, like now it's, it's amazing, before where people would never hear about a UFO case that happened in another country, you know, here in the United States, in another country like, say, England or, uh, or somewhere in Latin America mm -hmm. or somewhere over in Europe, 
Now they're able to go in and do a search, you know, on a number of uh, search engines and pull up all kinds of news articles. So in that sense, it's, very, it's, it's a very useful tool for staying in contact with folks and getting more information. And on the other hand, though, it's also been not so good in terms of there are a lot of people who can put websites up now and make all sorts of outrageous claims and uh, uh, do their UFO commerce online and uh, get their information out there a lot easier, too. Yeah. Um, and now, like, moving on to what UFO Watchdog is all about, um, like you said, you're sort of like the Better Business Bureau of Ufology. What do you think motivates these people that come out of the woodwork with their bogus stories and, and their elaborate claims? I, th I think it's a couple of things. And in, in kind of looking at this whole field, I think what, what's really happened is that a lot of people have taken, have taken the acronym UFO and have kind of made it, has kind of made it their own acronym as they've, as they've gone along. <laughs> I mean, in the purest sense, it's an unidentified flying object. It's something in flight. We don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of other people, though, and this is this kind of covers both the skeptics and the uh, and the believers in a lot of ways. It also covers those people whose motives are very questionable, as far as I'm concerned. But some people think that UFO means undeniably from outer space, <laughs> or some folks think it means unfounded, foolish observations, where you know anything you see can be explained. Yeah. And then there's the, the the group that I kind of focus on. And I think some of them think that UFO stands for ulterior financial opportunity or utterly – or it's, it's kind of a fantasy outlet for them. Yeah. Where they, they tend to tell people what most folks want to hear, mm -hmm. and they capitalize on people believing it. And that's where a lot of that comes from. A lot of those folks like to get out there, they like to sell, they like to wine and dine you, and then they hit you with the bill. Yeah. A lot of the people I talk to uh, in ufology who are on the show and everything, it seems like a mantra a lot of times comes up that there's no money to be made in ufology. Um, how, do you, how, do you, uh, how do you work that in, that paradoxical thing in with these hoaxers that are trying to make money? Is there money to be made in ufology, but it's all going to these, to these pony baloney guys, or are they just sucking all the money that, that the small pool that's there, are they the ones that are getting the money from the people that are willing to spend or how do you how do you uh, how do you um I'm at a loss for a word here how do you fit that paradox in with with what you've observed in the UFO field if there's no money to be made in UFOs then why are there UFO conventions why are people selling UFO books and publishing them why are people hawking DVDs and newsletters and why are people appearing at conferences there is there is money to be made depending on where you're at. If you're one of the researchers who does this full-time, who is committed to finding answers, and who tends to live by a, a code of ethics, so to speak, mm -hmm. who wants to go out there, who wants to do a good job, who wants to report the facts to the public, those folks who do that full-time, I think it's very difficult for them to, to make a living. I'll tell you what, they're not getting rich. <laughs> I'll guarantee you that. Yeah. On the, other, on the other side of the coin, there are the folks that want to make the sensationalistic claims. They want to tell you all sorts of nonsense. And it, it goes back to telling people what they want to hear kind of thing. Yeah. As their, as their, uh, as their hook to reel you in. If, if these people aren't making money, then why are they still around? 
there is money to be made in UFOs, and it depends on what side of the fence you're on. Mm -hmm. If you're on the side where you're willing to tell people anything and everything, so you can sell them a newsletter or a book or a DVD or a tape or a ticket to your lecture, those are the folks that are the problem in this field. Yeah. And in terms of money, here's a, here's a great example of this. A character named, uh, who was calling himself Dr. Jonathan Reed, and mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, maybe we'll have time to discuss that later, who came into this field out of nowhere with all sorts of sensational claims, none of which he could prove and still can't, was the keynote speaker at a UFO conference in Nevada. And during that time, he sold out the place, 700 people, at $20 a pop. Oh, wow. How much money is that? It's $14,000. So in terms of is there money to be made in UFOs, yeah, there is, and it depends on how you're trying to make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about that Dr. Reed hoax, because that seems to be um, one of the biggest claims to fame uh, for the UFOWatchdog.com website. You were the guys that, that really uh, that really got on this story, tackled it, and really uh, dissected it and, and, and broke the story that it was indeed a hoax. Um, why don't you, uh, by now, hopefully by now, most people have forgotten about it, but let's, <laughs> you know, but let's refresh their memory about what, who who uh, Dr. Reed was and what the story was and um, the whole saga of the Dr. Reed story. I got involved in this. I was out driving, driving around late at night. I was heading home, and I heard, I, I was listening to a late-night radio program where this guy was on several times, mm -hmm. and this guy comes on and says that he'd killed an alien in the woods in Washington State, and I believe it was no. November of 98 is when he was on, and he claimed that the incident happened October of 96. Okay. And he was accompanied by a fellow uh, calling himself uh, Robert Wraith, and he told of this encounter where he killed this alien in the woods of Washington State while he was out hiking with his dog. While he's out hiking with his dog, his dog starts going nuts, and this alien comes out and kills the dog. Well, Dr. Reed, not being too fond of this alien, having just killed his best friend... <laughs> picks up a tree branch and clobbers the alien in the head. And then he sees this small UFO. Well, he's killed the alien, so he says. So he gets out a survival blanket, um, one of those silver, uh, silver blankets for that conserves heat, mm -hmm. and wraps this alien up, throws it in his Jeep, and drives it home and throws it in a freezer. <laughs> and suddenly, the next thing you know, the alien comes back to life, the government's after him, and they've killed his friend, and they've ransacked his house, and they've taken all his evidence, and now Dr. Reed's on the run for his life. Oh, man. So that was the story, and this story garnered so much attention, it created such a fury among UFO folks, I was just amazed that this story made it as far as it did. Yeah. And I was, I was just like, what? <laughs> so I decided, well, I'm going to check into this, because this doesn't, this doesn't sound quite right. Because during the interview, this gentleman named Robert, who was calling himself Robert Race, had kind of guided this Dr. Reed character this Dr. Reed character through the program. Mm -hmm. Like it was scripted and they had practiced. Yeah. And so I started checking into it, and I talked to a lady named Laura Fine, uh, who was uh, representing herself as the manager for this Reed and Wraith character. Okay. For these two guys. Yeah. And I told her, I said, look, I have access to scientists and whatever else. If you would like to prove your story, I would be more than happy to help you out with that. And, of course, I got the answer I was expecting. Well, we're not interested in proving anything. Huh. 
And she got on the subject of, a, of doing a, uh, a book and producing a video and doing lectures. And she said that they wanted to make a movie out of it. And so what I did was I baited her a little bit, and I said, hey, listen, and this is true, by the way. I, I know someone who's in, the, who's in the film business down in uh, Los Angeles. And I brought up that person's name, and I said, hey, I know such and such who made this movie. You know, would you be interested in having him contact you? And she just, that, that, the conversation peaked from there. She was yeah. very happy to talk to me, and she wanted to keep talking about this movie deal. And so after that, I went, okay, <laughs> I know exactly what this is. This is a couple of folks who are likely doing this to gain, to gain financially. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll check it out and see what's what. And so I started investigating this whole thing. And I found a number of things that were very, very wrong about Dr. Reed. And in doing this, I'll get to the short of it because we don't have, I mean, we could talk about this for a good two hours easily. Yeah. Just this case alone. Well, when I started investigating the case, I found a number of problems with Dr. Reed and his evidence. He'd claimed that he had worked at a number of prestigious universities and had degrees from here and there. And, of course, you know, you couldn't find any of this because the bad guys had come and wiped all of his records clean, according to him. Yeah. And during this during this investigation, I also found out that his film wasn't quite what he was touting it to be. He'd had some stills. And what I did was he had, he had published some, some of these still negatives to the Internet, saying, see, these are the original negatives. And people were endorsing him as the real thing. And it was on Kodak Films, so I called Kodak. And I had a talk with, uh, with one of their film reps and told him, hey, this is, the, this is the time that the guy is claiming that he took these photos. Can you tell me when this film was manufactured? Yeah. And the guy said that in the time frame that, that Dr. Reed, quote unquote, claimed that he took these photos, he couldn't have because the film wasn't even manufactured. So that, that, that sealed it for me right there. Yeah. I said, well, okay, we're done. <laughs> the, cat's, the cat's out of the bag. Here's, here we go. And so I started publishing articles about my findings on the Internet, and I started catching some flack from some people. Suddenly, you know, and, and this is a big thing in the UFO field, suddenly when you start telling people what they don't want to hear, you're a government agent. Yeah. Yeah. You work for the government, you're a government bad guy, or you're working for somebody else, and they're paying you to feed them uh, disinformation, and it gets it gets pretty ridiculous, no matter what evidence you have. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I continued my investigation and found out a number of other things. And uh, a, a lesser-known piece in this story was that Dr. Reed had claimed that the government had yanked one of his teeth out and had replaced it with a fake tooth with a transmitter in it. <laughs> and I got I, somebody supplied me with uh, uh, with photos. Someone had contacted one of the investigators who was, or the so-called investigators that was involved in this whole Dr. Reed thing, and this investigator had supplied this person with these photos and this background story about this tooth. Well, this person forwarded it to me. He was nice enough to share it with me. And looking at it, it's a picture of a tooth with that's been broken in half, and there's a small electronic-looking device in the middle of it. Well, I posted that on the website because, one, it doesn't even look like a real tooth that came out of any human being. Yeah. 
And the other thing was that I was interested in what the device was because it looked very familiar to me. Well, somebody had written me back saying that it's a transistor. <laughs> you can buy a Radio Shack for a buck, and somebody just cut head, just snipped the ends off of it. Yeah. So that was another piece. So I continued to press on to try and find out who this guy was. I had made a couple of trips up to Seattle, and one day I'm checking my email, and this guy writes saying, "Hey, I know who this clown is." And I said, okay, well, yeah. who is he? And he said, call me and I'll tell you. So I called this gentleman and I talked to him, and he had a pretty interesting story that he had known this uh, this Jonathan Reed character, except his name wasn't Jonathan Reed. It was John Bradley Rudder. And he said that he had known this gentleman all of his life. And that this gentleman, during the time that he, or not all of his life, I'm sorry, for something like 12 years, he'd known him for a very long time. And said that this gentleman, this, who was posing as Dr. Reed, said that he was Dr. Jonathan Rudder and that he was a psychologist working graveyard doing evaluations for, for, uh, for patients and uh, making up treatment plans. And that, and that was just, I, I don't know any psychiatrists that work at night yeah. <laughs> unless yeah. I'm on call and going to a mental ward or whatever else. Yeah. So this gentleman, and uh, his name's uh, Bill Werner, told me, hey, I've known this guy for for a long time. And I said, okay, well, can you prove it? And he said, absolutely. Nice, yeah. His, and, and this is what Mr. Warner told me, he said that the ex, Rudder's ex-fiance's sister is about 25 minutes from you right now visiting some friends. I can call her and see if she wants to meet with you. Nice. And I said, okay, sure. So he, she, he put me in touch with this lady's sister, and I drove uh, about, about about a half hour from my home and met with this lady at a coffee shop. And uh, I, I didn't know these people. I didn't know what was really going on. I thought, okay, is, you know, is, you get a little paranoid when you're yeah. dealing with people that you don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I was, I was a little careful when I went up because these UFO people who pull this, this kind of stuff can be a little fanatical at times. Mm-hmm. And so I met with this lady, and we had coffee, and she was very nice. And I said, okay, so can you prove that you know this guy? And she told me, the story that she told me was that that Rudder had been her sister's fiancé for 15 years. Oh, wow. And had fooled them all for that period of time that he was a psychologist. Whew. That's quite a scam to be pulling off. Yeah. And so came the big question I came back to her. I said, okay, can you prove it? And she said, sure. Well, she happened to have uh, some family pictures with her that she'd brought down to show some friends of hers. Mm -hmm. And there were a ton of pictures of the esteemed Dr. Reed (laughs) uh, during the time that he was supposedly on the run. And uh, they showed, uh, one photo showed him at a wedding party. (laughs) (laughs) Another photo showed him at a wedding dinner. And during the time frame uh, that he claimed that he was on the run, he was hiding in Canada, he couldn't come up. uh, above ground because the bad guys were out to get him. And it showed another one of them at a Thanksgiving dinner where he was clowning around with uh, one of the children of the family. And it was just, I was like, okay, well, I guess this kind of seals it. Yeah. <laughs> and so in the middle of all this, before I, before I wrote my, my, uh, my invest, before I published my investigation, Dr. Reed had a number of supporters. We'll call him Dr. Reed because everybody, that's who they know him as. Yeah, yeah. He had a number of supporters, which I was very surprised at, at seeing some of these people 
supporting the story. One guy was uh, Daniel Iaria, and I've never met this gentleman, and I tried to have some communication with him, and he wound up blocking my email because, again, people who you tell things that they don't want to hear will ignore you or call you a government agent. Yes. And Daniel Iaria was a big supporter of the story, huge. He invested a lot of his money in the story. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of other investigators that supported this tale, and one of them was a gentleman named Jaime Musan, who a lot of people are probably familiar with. Yeah. And as far as I know, to this day, even after I have published my investigation exposing who this gentleman really was, and all my evidence, there are people who still support the story, and Mr. Musan apparently is one of them. And after I did this expose, and one of the more one of the more comical parts of all this was uh, Robert Wraith. I found out who he really was too. And there was another gentleman involved in this that they referred to as Doctor Harold Chacon. Mm-hmm. And they claimed that uh, Robert Wraith and this Doctor Harold Chacon character had never met. They met right after this, uh, you know, a few months after the uh, story had was on the was on the radio. Yeah. And they had had Dr. Chacon, who was supposed to be a microbiologist, uh, examine this DNA, this alien DNA that Rudder supposedly had. And they found that it was unlike anything else and da-da-da-da-da. Well, I found out that Robert Wraith and this Harold Chacon character both worked at a gas station <laughs> in, uh, in Seattle. And uh, there was some small little chat club group up in Seattle that had that had actually found this out. And they said that they found out that one of them worked there and then they found out the other or something like that. But anyway, that's, that's where the information came from. Yeah. And so I decided that once I had all this information, I'd be going up to Seattle to do my own little investigation. And when I got up there, I went to this gas station where these guys supposedly work, and uh, one of them, the uh, Robert Wraith, his real name's Robert Area, mm-hmm. uh, didn't work there anymore. He'd quit, and I think had moved down to California, or so the story goes. Yeah. Well, the Cheryl Chacon character is still working there. <laughs> oh man! So I walked in, and I got I, I got uh, I got gas, and I got some coffee and stuff left there. Walked up and uh, talked to him briefly, and uh, he he didn't want to say anything about the whole thing. He didn't want to talk about it at all. He must have been surprised to see you. And the guy's in his workplace, so I respected it. Yeah, he was very surprised. (laughs) And so I left and just, I figured, okay, well, I'm not going to bother this guy while he's at work. Yeah. And that was that. So I confirmed that this Harold Chacon guy worked there. The funny thing is that that while I was up there uh, on one of my trips, I stayed with a lady named uh, Kathleen Anderson Mm -hmm. uh, while I was up there. And Kathleen worked for, um, uh, uh, she was a MUFON member for a long time. She Pretty good UFO investigator, really nice lady, very sharp. And the funny thing was that at this gas station, Kathleen's brother worked there. Oh man! And so there was all these little ties, you know, to all those to all these other folks. And Kathleen lived, oh, she lived really close to that gas station, less, less, about a half a mile. And she told me that, and I talked to her brother, and her brother said, "Oh yeah, those guys are talking about that thing all the time in the gas station." And so. Um, anyway, I wound up uh, you know, publishing my uh, my investigation, and uh, that I thought that it had really put a dampener on the story and had finally exposed it for what it was. 
And the sad thing about this is during this time in between when he came out and when I published my investigation, people had bought books and videos and paid for lectures yeah. and who knows what else from these gentlemen and were really victimized, in my opinion, mm-hmm. by this group of people. Yeah. And the odd thing is that I talked to one of the investigators involved in this, a gentleman named Dan McAvoy, who had told me that during a trip down to, uh, I, I think it was Disneyland, that he and Rudder were out walking around, and Rudder knew quite a bit about the special effects business. He knew how they did all all the uh, all the special effects at these uh, theme parks. Yeah. And during this, he told me that, while well, uh, this McAvoy gentleman told me that while they were down there staying at a hotel, he saw one of the credit cards that that this Jonathan Reed character was using, mm-hmm. and saw the name John John Rudder on it. Yeah. Saw the real name, but for whatever reason, didn't say anything. And there were a number of other things that happened in this little circle of investigators. They, uh, one of the claims was that they had examined this this artifact that Reed had supposedly got from the alien, which was this thing called they called the link. You wore it on your wrist, and it supposedly uh, transported you to another dimension or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And they said that they had, had it examined in a lab and found that it utilized nanotechnology. And one of the other gentlemen that was involved in this, who I had a conversation with, told me that their analysis of this so-called link artifact consisted of a guy who has some kind of science background looking at it through a case and proclaiming that it had nanotechnology. Oh, man. <laughs> and one of the more strange aspects of this that I've heard from a couple of people that were in this little circle was Reed had gone down to Latin America, courtesy of Jaime Masson. Mm-hmm. And they had launched this big, this media blitz, where he was on a show called, I believe it is, uh, Alto Rojo. And I forget my terrible Spanish, but it, I think it means uh, one more time or something like that. But it said the show is the Tonight Show of Latin America. Oh, wow. They've got like 30 million people that watch this show. It's, huh. it's, it's enormously popular down there. It's huge. Yeah. And they were on the show for a couple of hours. Oh, wow. And got a lot of press attention down there. Well, during the stay down there, Jaime Musan had, this is what I was told, had hired security people to follow Rudder around because he was afraid that the guy posing as Dr. Reed, he was afraid that somebody was going to come and kill him, the government, you know, the so-called oh, yeah. bad guy. Yeah, yeah. And during this, they were, out, they were having lunch, and Rudder got up to go use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, AKA Dr. Jonathan Reed. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure this gets confusing for people. With all these <laughs> so, so we'll call him Dr. Reed from here on out. I said okay. that before, and I and I and I didn't. So anyway, Dr. Reed gets up to go use the bathroom, and one of the security guys kind of kind of follows him and can see him a little bit in the bathroom. Says that Dr. Reed made a fist and hit himself in the face. Then ran out to the table they were sitting at, saying, "Hey, I just got attacked." Oh man. Well, we never heard about this from any of the investigators because, for me, that would certainly set off a red flag. Yeah. Definitely. So there was a lot of stuff that a lot of people didn't wind up hearing about with regard to this this whole charade. Yeah. So. And, and uh, what's happened to Dr. Reed since then? Has he, since uh, he's been exposed as a hoaxer, has he sort of uh, fallen off the map now? Because I haven't heard anything about it in a long time. Incredibly, he has not. There have oh. been a couple of people down in Florida 
who have hosted him as a speaker for small private lectures. Mm-hmm. So he's still out there floating around, and he published, he republished a book, he has a new video out. I don't think that he's garnering the attention he used to. Yeah. And I hope that's because of, of the investigation that, that that's on my website. I really do, because I'll tell you, this guy, he got a lot of money from a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. And during and after I exposed this, he had issued some very strange statement saying, well, what what I said happened really happened, but it happened at another time in another life, and uh, oh, they weren't interested in, in providing any proof, and uh, and that was that was kind of the end of it. So he's still out there floating around. He was actually at a UFO conference in Nevada walking around with uh, – with someone last year, and they took a fo- and uh, they took a photo of him, and I'm surprised they would even let that guy in the door. Yeah. If I ran that conference, I'll tell you what, he would be the last person who would be allowed in there after pulling that charade. Yeah, exactly. Um, and now moving on to uh, another more infamous uh, hoax that you've investigated pretty heavily on your website, and that has become pretty big news this spring is uh, the alien autopsy film hoax that. Um, was even probably even more famous than the Dr. Reed story because the alien autopsy story made it to mainstream America. It's almost uh, now it's almost like a, a joke in mainstream America now. Alien autopsy movie. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about your investigation of the alien autopsy film and uh, what you think of what's going on now with regards well, to Race Antilly and this UK film. I'm not entirely familiar with it, so you know more about it than I do. I, I've actually seen the special you're talking about. Okay. And I, I really haven't investigated it per se. There's a gentleman named Mark Sinner who runs a website called Beyond Roswell. It's one of the best sources of information for alien autopsy film information. Mm-hmm. And he has really done a lot of investigating on this film from, from, from start to finish. It's got a, a great website with a lot of good information on it. So I haven't investigated this per se. When I first got into UFOs, for whatever reason, in my mailbox, I got pictures of this um, of this uh, of the still movie that came out uh, and I, I'm not really sure why I got the pictures someone just sent them to me and it was before this whole brouhaha started before anybody had even seen the film I had these pictures and I w- really wasn't sure why they got sent to me and the story the story was told about them somebody had written me this, this real brief letter about it and I really didn't know much about it at the time and then the whole brouhaha started with it yeah where a gentleman named Ray Santilli had claimed that he was here in the United States uh, buying film uh, uh, stock footage of Elvis Presley because he was doing documentaries and selling, uh, selling them. And during this, he says that he found one gentleman who had footage of Elvis who also showed him what he claimed was the autopsy of an alien that was covered from a, from a UFO crash in Roswell. Yeah. And the gentleman who was trying to sell him the film claimed that, oh, I was a cameraman for the Army, no one knows I've had. I've got this film. I'm getting old. You know, I could use some money. Yeah. And so Ray Santilli left and came back two years later and supposedly bought the film from this gentleman. And from there on out, it started. It, it was just. It was such a sensational piece of footage that a lot of people really thought that it was the real deal. The serious folks in the UFO, in the UFO field didn't buy it for five seconds. Yeah. A lot of people were decrying this film as an outright fraud, but no one could prove it. That was what the really interesting thing is, because generally, the fraud, you know, the, the folks that perpetrate these frauds and these hoaxes aren't too bright when it comes to covering their own tracks. Yeah. 
And so a lot of people started investigating this film. A lot of UFO personalities, and I call them UFO personalities because these are the people you either hear on late night radio quite a bit or you see at conventions or you hear their name all the time or they publish a number of books or whatever else. Yeah. A lot of UFO personalities endorse this film as real, saying that, well, I have you know friends of mine who are, you know, or I have intelligence contacts within the government that say that this film is real or whatever else. And it went on and on and on, and it was the... The, uh, the subject of a special that was broadcast on uh, on the Fox uh, channel yep. called Alien Autopsy Factor Fiction. And it was a ratings bonanza for the folks at Fox, and they made a ton of money on it. Well, in the same vein, Mr. Santilli made an awful lot of money off this thing, selling the rights to several TV companies throughout the world. Yeah. And the one thing that I always stuck to when this film came out was that Santilli never gave up a piece of that footage for an actual analysis to determine if it was real or not in terms of when was it filmed, is the footage real, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He never did that, and that was one sticking point with me. When that happened, I said, forget it. I'm I'm not going to give this film five more seconds of my time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though I watched the special like everybody else because I was interested in what it was about. Well... This last month, there was a program on the Sky One TV network in uh, in England where a gentleman oh, – I forgot I, I forgot the gentleman's name, but his show is called Eamon Investigates. Yeah. And he interviewed Ray Santilli and a number of other people who claimed that they were in on this, and Santilli said that it was a hoax. Well, he didn't call it a hoax. He called it a reconstruction. He still claims that the footage he had was real. But by the time he had first contacted the cameraman and when he had finally gotten the film back in London, he said that 95% of it had oxidized and was ruined. Yeah. And that the remaining 5% of the film was in terrible condition. And so he decided to, quote-unquote, reconstruct it. (laughs) And so they got a special effects guy, they molded an alien, they threw it on the table, and they claimed that they used a flat in London to film... The, as a stage for this alien autopsy that they filmed, yeah. where they had converted it and they bought antiques and had done some research on, well, would these tools be available and some of the techniques that, that uh, surgeons use doing autopsies and whatever else. Yeah. And the guy who did the special effects for it, uh, apparently he's a sculptor named John Humphreys, said that he used a sheep's brain for the brain and a uh, lamb's leg for the leg joint. You might recall there was one leg on the alien that was all blown out that looked like it had been been severely injured and was very charred and everything else, and that's what they used. And so now they've confessed to this whole thing, and now people are... It's it's been a very weird reaction, because when they said, well, we we used sheep's brains, a lot of people said, well, that doesn't look like a sheep's brain to me. There's something else going on here. And Santilli himself has said, <laughs> Santilli himself has said that in his quote-unquote reconstruction, he has actually inserted original frames from the surviving alien autopsy footage that he claims is real. Yeah. And it's really hard to tell the difference between the frames and what he's reconstructed. Mm-hmm. And he'd actually, on this program, uh, he had actually shown some of the frames, but you really couldn't see what was on them. But he said he had brought some to show the investigator. And so um, what's really – what's this isn't a coincidence, in my opinion, that Santilli did this. Because he just released a movie called Alien Autopsy, which is a comedy based on him 
supposedly acquiring the film and all the controversy that followed it. Yeah. So a lot of people were, were really questioning his timing as to him coming forward and saying, oh, yeah, well, it was a hoax. Well, re- restoration, as he, as he wants to call it. Yeah, because the special made for a good promotional vehicle for his movie. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then, uh, obviously, ufology is littered with these kind of stories, um, well, and, and controversial stories in general, really, where people take one side or the other, and you can run the gamut from uh, Billy Meyer to uh, MJ-12, uh, Dolce Bases, and recently Dan Burrish. Um, is there any other controversial UFO story that uh, that UFOWatchdog.com has like sunk its teeth into uh, that you could tell me about that, that uh, people might be interested in hearing about? The, there was a, a case down in uh, Brazil in 2003 mm-hmm. um, where a gentleman named, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right or not, is a Urandir Oliveira. And Urandir claimed that uh, he was contacted telepathically by some ETs and transported from his bed up into a ship and flew off for a while and then returned. And I, some people are probably familiar with this because the evidence that he purportedly had were were his bed sheets where they had somehow, if you look at the bed sheets in this picture that, that he's, that's out there, there's a tr- there's an outline of a human body. There's a contour you can make out of a human body and it looks like it's, you know, burned and yeah. uh, there's been some inner energy interaction or whatever else you want to call it and some uh, small stones. And there was a lot of controversy surrounding this case because the first time it got looked at by some scientists, they said there's nothing magical about the bed sheets. There's nothing we can't explain. And these stones that he claims fell from the sky when he was abducted are a common stone in that area, and they're also common here in the United States, down in the in the in the Southwest, and they're called Moki marbles. And they're just they're just rocks that have formed on their own. They're very round. And a lot of uh, New Age kind of stores sell them down there in the desert and wherever else. Yeah. Well, what had happened was the person investigating the case didn't feel that the scientist did a good enough job. So that person went and got a second opinion. And it raised quite a stink in the UFO community. And what finally wound up happening was it fell off the face of the planet. No one heard anything else about the supposed evidence. Yeah. And some rocks were supposedly taken to uh, some some uh, some professors at a university back east, and they looked at the rocks and said, "Well, you know, we've never seen anything like this, but they're not extraterrestrial by any means." And uh, I guess they really didn't get to finish their analysis because the investigator came back and pulled the rocks out, and that was kind of the end of it. And um, uh, kind of the point I want to make is that, you know, we always hear about these great UFO, these supposedly great UFO cases, and we get the sensational half of the story, but we never get the other half of the story. What was the end result with a lot of this evidence and, you know, follow-up investigation and whatever else? We yeah. never really get to hear about that. So that's just one of many, 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 <laughs> many, 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 you know, cases that uh, that are out there that you just kind of shake your head out and wonder, how did it get there? Why haven't we heard about this? Where's the follow-up, you know? What's exactly. What's going on with it? So yeah. You, so you might have hearing about a lot of that. Yeah. This will, I was, yeah, I was, you took the words right out of my mouth. You hear a lot of stories, and the stories always get to the investigation phase, and then you never hear about them again. And that, that seems to be a recurring theme uh, in ufology. 
Uh, and one of the more interesting episodes that you've been involved with was uh, an investigation of yours that sort of transcended just an investigation and became a story in and of itself, and, and you sort of became part of the story, and that was uh, the infamous Sean David Morton investigation that eventually turned into a lawsuit. Um, now, I've heard a lot about uh, this lawsuit uh, via Sean David Morton and his various appearances on other radio programs, and I figured since we have you on the show, it would be a great opportunity to get the other side of the story on the Sean David Morton lawsuit. So uh, why don't you tell us what you can um, about this story? Back in 2001, early 2001, I published uh, an investigation called The Shameless Psychic and Prophecy of Lies, and it was about this gentleman named Sean Morton, who had made a number of claims on his website and through other avenues. And I, my investigation had revealed that a lot of these claims weren't all they, all they were cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. And so I published a story. I'd asked him to respond several times, never got an answer from him. And so years later, I get sued. This <laughs> guy filed a million-dollar lawsuit against me, and uh, I was I was surfing the web, and I found out my website was down, and I contacted my web host, and he told me, "Hey, Sean David Morton suing you," and I kind of had a chuckle because I thought he was joking with me. Yeah, and he wasn't, and I thought, okay, well, fine, we'll we'll go ahead and deal with it. And so I got served with some papers and went through it, and I was lucky enough to retain a, a really good attorney who asked me. Uh, to have a phone conference with her, and I had a phone conference, and she said, "Hey, send me all your all your proof." And so I fed extra a box of stuff, yeah, uh, with all with copies of all my files in it. And she called me back and said, "Okay, fine, yeah, this this looks good. I'll I'll take this case." So she takes the case, and what happens is she files this motion where it's called a slap. It's a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Yeah, and I really felt that. Mr. Morton filed this lawsuit to silence me because he didn't like what was going on. And if a guy's suing you for a million dollars and says in his lawsuit that you're impacting him financially, well, <laughs> you know. So anyway, uh, it winds up going to a hearing, and I really felt that he was doing this just to just to keep me quiet. And I think he wanted my website and a bunch of the other things on there to go away. Yeah. So he said that everything on the website was false. So my lawyer responded saying, uh, it's not false, it's true. And if Mr. Morton wants to provide evidence that his claims have even a, uh, a chance of being found to be true, then he needs to provide evidence that my client has said anything false about him. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it came down to. Uh, I don't need, you know, uh, to sit here and tell you a tale for a half an hour. It's very short and it's sweet. He was asked to prove his claims in court. All he had to do was prove that one single solitary claim that I made against him was false, and he would have won, and he didn't do it. And that's really what it came down to. And he he was ordered to pay my legal fees, and that was the end of it. Yeah. And so he's had chance after chance after chance to respond to all these claims. He's had, you know, a lawsuit. He tried to appeal it. He's had a number of years, his website, and a number of other avenues that he could have responded to it on. But I've invited him several times, and it's posted on my website that I'll either discuss this matter with him publicly if he wants to, or if he wants to provide proof of his claims, I'll be more happy to publish on my website. 
It's really that simple, and that was pretty much it. And I think the most amusing, <laughs> this, the most amusing thing about this is that this is a guy who claims that he's a psychic, but he kind of couldn't see the outcome of his own lawsuit. <laughs> I just that's just priceless to me. I think that's just just absolutely priceless. Yeah. So that really was was the crux of the whole lawsuit. He said I was lying. He tried to sue me. I said prove it. He couldn't do it, and that's the end of it. Yep. Yep. Well, I'm glad we got the opportunity to uh, to get your side of the story, and you know, and just to be fair, I'll uh, extend the invitation to Sean David Morton to come on Banal America Audio in response to the lawsuit story. If he wants to, you know, he can drop me a line, and we'll bring him on the show to respond. Maybe someday we can get you guys head to head in some situation. It'd be really cool. But if Sean David Morton wants to be on Banal America Audio to respond to the lawsuit, then he can come on the show. Um, and if, if Mr. Morton wants, I'll happily have a public conversation with him about it. Hey, that would be fantastic. I'd love to host that. That would be killer. Um, one of the things that I saw on the website that really amused me, and hopefully uh, well, maybe you can expound on it a little more, uh, you have sort of like Dirtbag of the Month. And uh, the one that really made me laugh the most, I guess, was Aliens. The Aliens are the Dirtbag of the Month. <laughs> for all the problems they've caused us and, and for the for the bizarre subculture they've they've spawned here on uh, planet Earth. Um, what about these dastardly aliens? I wish they, I, I share your opinion that I wish they would just show up and end this foolishness now so we can all move on and, you know, go on to the next level instead of uh, playing hide-and-seek like five-year-olds. Well, the aliens, whether they exist or not, if they exist, they're probably having a good laugh at our expense. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, how would you feel if you saw all this kind of nonsense going on down here and you were, you know, a, a higher, more intelligent being, for, let's say? I don't think I'd want to land here. Exactly. <laughs> I think I'd be avoiding this planet. That's just me. Yeah, the, the, whole, the whole bit about tying, you know, aliens into UFOs and really UFOs and, and popular culture means aliens now. It doesn't mean what I'd gone back to earlier, that literal acronym where it's an unidentified flying object. Yeah. It means... E.T., aliens, uh, beings from space, uh, space brother, you know, space brother, whatever you want to call them, exactly. whatever, whatever they're calling them now, yeah. the grays. And it's really true that I don't think that any other figure, aside from religious figures, I don't think any other figure has really dominated our society in terms of media and popular culture like the aliens have. It's it's really really amazing, and uh, I was at McMinnville this weekend at the UFO Fest. I, I I did a presentation there, and Paul Davids was there. I'm not sure if you know who he is or not. Yeah, he made the Roswell movie. Right, and uh, I I met Paul a number of years ago, and we were we touched base, and we watched the parade together, and Paul brought up a really great point. He said that at a lot of parades, whether the UFO festival parades or whether they're Fourth of July parades. Yeah. And he, and, he, and he focused on the 4th of July parades. He says, do you notice that you see more people dressed up like aliens than you do of Abe Lincoln or George Washington? Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, it was a, a, a great insight because really our society in terms of what we think about aliens and whatever, it's really kind of dominated by those images of the big eyes, big head, you know, kind of short little guys. Yeah. And... I'm just I'm just amazed at, at how prominent that really is out there in books and movies and uh, TV series and cable shows and, and everything else. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I, I learned uh, that really opened my eyes a lot um, was something I'd heard from Stan Friedman, and that was that the uh, that the classic typical image of the gray that that uh, that nobody owns any trademark on the gray alien. So you can literally put it on whatever you want, and you're never going to get in any trouble. And it's a pretty popular image. It's like a Mickey Mouse, but without the trademark copy. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. He's completely right. Yeah. And so it's like yeah. It's like you can over the market can be completely oversaturated with gray aliens because um, no one owns gray aliens, so it helps. Yeah, the the, the dirtbag thing that I did on the aliens was kind of my uh, uh, my, my humorous look at the aliens. Yeah, yeah, in, in a lot of ways. I, yeah. I thought it was pretty funny anyway. Maybe someone else won't, but well, I, I could get a laugh out of it. So, you know, I'm sure most of the people do uh, when you really think about it. The aliens are the you cause of all laugh. of this. You have to laugh about a lot of this stuff. You you really do because yeah. the, the field's just if you didn't you'd just go nuts if you took it one hundred and twenty five percent seriously all the time. Exactly, exactly. Like that's one of the reasons. Uh, like I said at, at, at the beginning, that's one of the big influences on Vanilla of America uh, that UFOWatchdog.com has had is that we, uh, you know, we we take everything with a grain of salt and we try to inject some humor into things because you know a lot of this cloak and dagger stuff is shadow and just uh, for a fact. You know, and if you see through that, you're kind of like, oh, you know, it's not really, uh, it's not as spooky as it is after all or something. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, moving on to uh, to take it in a more positive light. At your website, you also highlight what you call the Hall of Fame. And it's not, uh, you know, ufology is not just riddled with hoaxers and liars and snake oil salesmen and people trying to get your money. There's also a lot of great researchers out there. So who would you say gets the UFOWatchdog.com stamp of approval or the Hall of Fame uh, notation, as you like to call it? On, on a side note about this, really quick, mm -hmm. during my presentation this weekend at that uh, festival in McMinnville, I have a slide that I use in my presentation where I show three three UFO researchers who are heavily involved in the, in, in the physical aspect of, of UFO investigation. Yeah. And I asked, I asked the audience to name, for anybody that can name these three people, nobody could name them. Not one person could name all three people. Yeah. And I had uh, Nancy Talbot from the uh, BLT uh, research team mm -hmm. and Ted Oliphant, uh, who, was a, uh, who was best known for his cattle mutilations, mutilation investigations back in Alabama when he was a police officer. Yeah. And then I had Ted Phillips who has worked for years and years and years gathering uh, physical trace case evidence and having it analyzed. And not one person could could name any of those people. I was amazed. One person kind of knew who Nancy Talbot was but didn't know her name. Yeah. said, oh, that's the, that's the crop circle lady. <laughs> that's what they <laughs> referred to her as. Well, if you go to my hall of shame for people that I really feel are doing a lot of discredit to this field, if you look in that, people readily will recognize those names. Yeah. If you go to the hall of fame... There are a few names that, that, that people will, will likely recognize, but not a lot. And that really tells you where UFOs are at in terms of who, uh, in terms of who people look to to get their information. Yeah. They, they go to the UFO personalities, not the investigators. Yeah. And uh, in the Hall of Fame, I've got, I've got quite a few people in there. And I think a lot of people don't know that I have a Hall of Fame. They think I'm just out there to, to, to cap on every single person that's in this field, and that's entirely not true. Exactly, yeah. Um, in, in, the, in, the fame, in the Hall of Fame, I've got uh, J. Allen Hynek, 
of course. And uh, Nancy Talbot, I've done some work with Nancy, and she's she's just a super, super sharp lady and really likes science, likes to apply science to the uh, to the field. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I've got Stan Friedman. I disagree with some stuff that Stan has to say, but I like Stan. I think he, I think he does a pretty good job. Another gentleman, I have uh, Richard Hall. He's written several several books on uh, UFOs, and he was a NICAP investigator. And his his UFO evidence books are are just fabulous. Um, I've got a lot of people in here, and I would just ask anybody who's going to my website to to go ahead and take a visit. Just go ahead and take a spin around through there and see some of these folks who I who I really feel have done a lot of a lot of credit to the to the field. I've, Peter Robbins, I've got him in there, and. Uh, um, I think you've interviewed Peter, haven't you? Yeah, Peter's a great yeah, guy. Right. Yeah, he sure is. He sure is a wonderful man. Yeah. Very nice guy. And um, yeah, so if you just take a cruise through there, I've got it. I've got a little bit of everybody in there. Somebody wrote me. I've got Cal Corf in there, and a lot of people think that Cal's this big, you know, government-sponsored UFO debunker, and he really isn't. Cal's just. He, he just needs a lot of convincing. <laughs> you know, he really does. And, uh, um, I, yeah, just take this man through there and see who's in there. Yeah. And these are a lot of people that probably most folks don't know about. And their research is solid and it's good and it's worth checking out. And a lot of times if you if you check out some of these people, like you said, in the Hall of Shame, uh, a lot of their stuff doesn't go anywhere. And you're kind of like, like we said, uh, at, at the investigating stage sort of. Right, you know, where's where's the evidence at? That's what I really like. I like things that we that, that you can send to people who know much more than I do. That you can send them things that they can analyze, and um, I just like solid stuff. I'm a physical evidence kind of guy. I always have been, and uh, always will be. Yeah. Um, and then to uh, sort of take it to uh, a contemporary level, in a sense, um, the big news of the last six months uh, has been Serpo. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Serpo. I'm sure you're watching it just like the rest of us are. Everyone's sort of watching Serpo to see what's going to happen. Will it fall into the uh, the Dr. Reed alien autopsy level of hoaxery, or will it turn out to be something uh, more than that? Who knows? Uh, what's your opinion on Serpo as it's unfolded so far? I'll keep it really short and sweet until I see some proof. I'm not going to believe a word they're saying. And it goes back to my, my conspiracy end on that, is how do you prove that? Yeah. How do you prove a conspiracy if no one wants you to prove it? <laughs> you, you, you don't. And it's just one of those, it's one of those stories, it's a fascinating story, you know, if you really think about it. Even oh, yeah. in terms of science fiction, it's a good story. Yeah. But as far as I'm concerned, until there is some proof, because when you start getting uh, anonymous sources and this and that, and you don't have anything to back the story up with, I'm, I'm just not going to, I'm going to stay away from it. I'm not, I'm not going to touch it, and I'm not going to pay any attention until that stuff shows up. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, uh, but where do you think the Serpo story will go in the long run? Do you have an opinion on, like, how you think it, uh, what direction it'll go at all? It, it's really taken on a life of its own on the Internet. Yeah. And if it keeps going where it's going, it's going nowhere. What do you mean by that? Story after story after story, posting after posting after posting, with nothing to back anything up with. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it at all. Yeah, you think if they just keep rolling out these stories, that people are going to yawn eventually and sort of go away? Yeah, exactly. People aren't going to pay any attention. People, I think, and I think we're kind of in an age where people are starting to question things quite a bit more than they ever have. Yeah, and people are really turning into, you know, show me the evidence. Where's yeah. the proof? Yeah. Um, 
Okay, and uh, also you have uh, one section on your thing about conferences, and you uh, said you recently spoke at the 7th Annual UFO Fest, and uh, I think you said McMinnville? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in McMinnville, Oregon. Um, so uh, why don't you just give me your thoughts on that? You were pretty down on conferences, like you said. Has that sort of changed your opinion? Were you, uh, were you happy with the way that one went? Um, you know, your thoughts on conferences in general and, 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 your, and your recent appearance. You don't usually do appearances at conferences, right? So I, I've turned down some speaking invitations in the past, and I've had a personal policy for a number of years that I don't do UFO conventions or conferences. I just don't because of the, the, the experiences that I had when with the two that I did go to, I didn't like it. It was very uh, contrived and very sensationalized, and there was a lot of nonsense floating around. And I just didn't want to have any part of it because I thought it was very, very uncredible, and that it was very, it had a very negative effect on a lot of the a lot of the solid cases and and the, the, the solid body of UFO evidence. Mm -hmm. And so I just said, no way. <laughs> so in hell, I'm doing one of these things. And a couple of weeks ago, I got a call from a guy who runs this UFO fest in McMinnville, Oregon. And he said that somebody had recommended me to as a speaker there. And he asked me if I would be interested. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> there was, I just didn't even mince words with the guy. I said, no, I, I'm not doing it. Here's my policy, and here's why. Yeah. And the guy said, could I take, you know, 10 minutes of your time real quick? And I said, well, sure. I mean, you've gone through the trouble of calling me. And just, he just explained to me, he said, look, I, I understand your aversion to these things. And, you know, I've read your website, and I can understand that. And we have a very serious site that we offer, and we try to offer the most credible speakers we can find and people that we feel are credible. We avoid, you know, the kind of kookery that goes along with the UFO scene. Yeah. And on the other side, too, we have kind of this lighthearted affair. There's this lighthearted side of it that we do with the UFO parade, and uh, we do a, a, a reenactment of War of the Worlds on stage, and a bunch of other stuff. And he says, yeah. I, "You know, I won't, I won't tell you that we're completely serious, but we're, we're we are serious about having, you know, are trying to present the most credible speakers that we can." Yeah, pretty disciplined. Right. And so I listened to the guy, and he seemed like he was pretty sincere. And I said, "Let me think about it, and I'll get back to you." So I thought about it, and I talked to a couple of people that I know and who, who have done the UFO, you know, have done the UFO speaker circuit, so to speak. Yeah. And they really highly recommended it. And so I thought, okay, fine, I'll go do it. Why not? So I called the guy back, and I went and did it. And uh, I got up there after uh, – it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> the, the trip was horrible. I got bad directions the whole time, and just uh, – it was just – I was exhausted. I didn't have much sleep the night before when I left. And and got up there, and I and I had a really good time. It was very well done. I thought it was very tasteful the way that they presented everything. And the whole event, the whole festival centers around the uh, Paul Trent 1950 uh, UFO sighting and subsequent photographs of that sighting. And they had the guy. They had a guy there who had filmed a documentary on the Trent case, and they they screened that. And it was it's a very good good documentary. It's very well done. And I, I I can't remember the name of the gentleman who filmed it, but he did an excellent job with it. And I had a great time. I even went to the damn UFO parade. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe I'd done that. And I met a lot of really nice people up there. And uh, I dare to say that I would I would do that again. I would probably go back to that festival if I if I was if I was ever invited back, definitely. And uh, the, the the lectures were very well attended, 
and there were a number. And at first, when I went there, I thought I didn't know what to expect. I kind of thought, well, you know, maybe I, maybe I, I'm going to be viewed as the bad guy there. And uh, I got up there to do my presentation, and everything went wrong with that damn presentation that could possibly have gone wrong. Uh, I, because I, I, I generally don't do public speaking. I just don't. It's just not my thing. Some people are really good at it. I'm not. I'll be frank about it. And so my presentation, I had a PowerPoint presentation that I was doing, and they loaded up the presentation, and it wasn't working. It wouldn't come up on the screen. Oh, man. And I was really relying on some notes and some other things, and so I kind of had to ad lib there, and the and uh, the audience and I had a good laugh over this thing not working. And uh, once it finally got rolling and stuff, I, I think I I think I did okay. And, uh, it, yeah, it was a good time. I had a really good time over there, and the, the people were very – it was well, really well received. I really didn't think it was going to be. I thought these people aren't going to like me at all <laughs> because I kind of I, I kind of I'm pretty blunt when I'm talking about things and I'm very direct. Yeah. And but it was really well received. So that whole that whole experience has kind of changed my my viewpoint of the conference scene. The other thing too is that these conferences and it's kind of sad, uh, you know, especially with the big ones because they do a lot of that sensationalist crap and. It's the only real public venue on any large scale, besides doing radio or TV, yeah. that researchers, serious legitimate researchers, can go and present their evidence and their findings. Yeah, yeah. And it's really, really sad that it, that it comes down to that. And what I noticed at the conferences that I went to long ago was that the people who were presenting the more, more sensationalistic, outlandish material had more people in their workshops than the people who were serious, legitimate, hands-on investigators. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. And uh, a lot of it revolved around money and making deals and this and that. And you know, I, I'm not, I'm not into any of that. I just yeah. like people to, to get the information and be done with it. So that's cool. And a, another thing was, I, I ran into a lot of people down there. Uh, it was the first place that I ran into Sean David Morton, and. I, I tried to ask him some questions, and when I started asking some pointed questions about some things, he just didn't have time. Turned around in the middle of our conversation and walked off. <laughs> and that happened to me quite a bit down there. Quite a few people did that. And some people were just saying just some nonsensical garbage. One guy had told me that the stars in the sky were giant UFO motherships. And I kind of <laughs> rolled my eyes, and I said, okay, okay. Uh, What's your, proof, what's, you know, what's your proof of that? Yeah. He said, my proof is that the stars move in the sky at night. <laughs> and I said, you don't think that has anything to do with the rotation of the planets? Or, <laughs> you know, when you yeah. hear stuff like that, it's really, you know, your eyebrows go up. And, and after that, I used to really didn't want to have any part of them at all, ever. And, uh, I, like I said, I just had a very good time at the COO conference, and I thought I was done and, and done very respectfully and in good taste. That's great. That's great. Um, so what uh, what's next for Royce Meyer and UFOWatchdog.com? Um, are you working on any key investigations right now? I, I don't have anything going. And for my real life uh, has, has taken a lot of my time uh, with my with my job and my family. And yeah. uh, 
some other things that I have going, and I'll just, you know, we'll see what comes up next. There is a case I want to go down and investigate down on the coast that somebody had sent me that happened a number of years ago, and I don't want to go into too many details about it because I haven't done the investigation. So uh, when that happens, maybe I can check back in with you. Nice, nice. And um, now I know you're down on books and conferences and stuff, but have you ever considered putting out a book at all? Because it sounds like like uh, the year investigations and some of these adventures that you've gotten, you found yourself in, uh, would be an interesting book. Have you ever considered that? I, you know, I, I almost, almost started writing a book about the whole Jonathan Reed case because there was just so much there that a lot of people still don't know about, and I just, I just kind of shied away from the idea. Yeah. I, I just did. I don't want to be accused of doing the same thing that I'm that I've been against all this time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't want to kick myself in the in the ass, so to speak. And yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So no, I, I really haven't considered doing it. You know, maybe maybe one of these days, if I if I am inspired enough to write a book or feel that that it's time to write a book, I'll I'll probably do some kind of charity deal where the proceeds go to charity, and you know, who knows? Yeah, you know, maybe like a. Uh the worst UFO hoaxes ever, and the, the proceeds can go to actual UFO investigations that are, like, legit. <laughs> yeah, right. We can dream, can't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, well, thank you very much for being on the show, Royce. Um, like you said, like we covered a lot of great topics here in the interview, um, you know, people in the ufology field, uh, a lot of times they're told what they want to hear, and a lot of times they don't want to be told that they've been fooled or that they've been bamboozled or that maybe somebody's been lying to them, but sometimes that's the case. And you do an amazing amount of great work uh, rooting out these people that are trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the serious investigators and the lay people in the field of ufology. So, like you said, Better Business Bureau of Ufology, we've needed somebody like this for a long time. I highly appreciate your work. And uh, like I said, you've been a big inspiration to BenallOfAmerica.com, so I was more than happy to have you on the show and, and to hopefully bring more people to uh, UFOWatchdog.com and give them a chance to understand what you do and what your website's all about. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, appreciate it. Thank you. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. I want to thank Royce Myers for stopping by. The website, of course, UFOWatchdog.com. Check it out. I also want to thank Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee for your help and support with the audio series and with the website. If you haven't checked out their columns, please do so. Leslie's on Tuesday, Chiron on Wednesday, R. Lee every other Monday or so. That's at BenAllOfAmerica.com, plus tons more satirical pictures that you're just going to laugh out loud at if you see them. The weekly BenAllOfAmerica.com mothership, the Benall Report, that comes out on Friday evenings. And just tons more. Check out BenAllOfAmerica.com. We update twice a day, sometimes three times a day. You never know what's going on with us. And if you're a long-time listener of Benall of America Audio, please feel free to click the PayPal button, make a donation, help us out, help offset the costs of the audio series. We would greatly appreciate it, and it would really go a long way to keeping the show on the road. Next week, the guest is to be announced. I'm playing a serious game of phone tag here with this guy. I got two more guests lined up for Banal of America Audio Season 1. We're in the final countdown here. The last episode, of course, will be the season finale of Season 1. Then we'll be taking the summer off, and we'll be rocking and rolling at you in September with Banal of America Audio Season 2. But, for now, next week, to be announced, we'll let you know what's going on at the website. Until you hear from me again, folks, thanks for listening. This is Tim Benall, signing off.